how do we talk about children who have disabilities? Are we obsessed with deficits? Are we focusing on potential and possibilities? Do we share the contributions of not only our students with disabilities with a larger community, but of people who've been successful in science, history, politics, government, arts. So many adults who have been successful have disabilities. We don't talk about them much, and we're perpetuating this myth of normalcy. I'm Jill Shaw, here with Ross Wilson, and this is Deep Dives, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. In this pod, we bring together national experts for a roundtable discussion about key issues in our schools, diving deep into root causes and innovative solutions. There are more than 7 million students with a disability in the United States, which represent a variety of different needs and abilities. Schools across the country continue to struggle to meet the needs of students with disabilities in the least restrictive environment possible. And gaps have only grown over the past decade. Valerie Williams serves as the director of the Office of Special Education Programs at the United States Department of Education. Valerie brings a wealth of experience, supporting states and districts across the country in helping students with disabilities. Bill Henderson is a former school leader in Boston who led one of the most successful inclusive schools in the country, with his work in inclusion nationally recognized. Valerie and Bill join us to talk about the state of special education across the country and how schools can better support students of all abilities. Valerie and Bill, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us to talk about a particularly intricate issue in education today, special education and the IDEA Act. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Well, it's great to have you here. Valerie, you're the director of the Office of Special Education Programs for the Department of Education. And one of the things that you do is oversee the execution of the IDEA Act. In the inception of the act was in 1975. So what was happening in this country leading up to that where folks were lobbying to establish the act? So I don't think most people realize this, but prior to the IDEA being passed, children with disabilities were not even in school. They were either at home with their parents or they were in institutions. And I know parents who have children with disabilities who are now adults who have stories about how when they were having their children in the hospital, the doctors came to them and said, do you want to take your child home or do you want to put them in an institution? You have a choice. Or there was the assumption that you were putting your child in an institution. So they weren't even physically allowed in the school settings. And so one of the biggest things that IDEA did is that it made it plain and clear that education is a civil right and that everyone should be allowed access to school. So we got beyond the physical access to the school building, and we're still having a lot of the conversations about meaningful inclusion in school and what that should and could look like. So speaking of meaningful inclusion, love to talk to you, Bill, about what you built in Boston at the O'Hearn School as an inclusive school. How did you do it? How did you start working at the O'Hearn and how did you work on it becoming an inclusive school and a model really for our country and internationally? Well, I have to admit that I got involved with special education out of a personal need. When I was 30 and teaching middle school, I started going blind because of retinitis pigmentosa. And my doctor and a deputy superintendent both wanted me to get out of education. So for me, inclusion was a 
personal challenge. In the late 80s, I met a group of parents who were organizing, and they were upset because their children were automatically being excluded. Up until that time, there was no school in Boston and relatively few around the country where students who had intellectual or multiple disabilities could learn in classrooms with their peers, even though the general education classroom with supports and services was supposed to be the first consideration. So these parents organized, advocated, the school committee relented, designated the O'Hearn to be an inclusive school. I was fortunate enough to be appointed principal. And then along with staff, family members, and supporters from universities and agencies, we collaborated to figure it out. Was it hard? It was hard, but it was fun. And I think, you know, the ultimate goal is for inclusion is meaningful participation and successful performance. And inclusion, when done well, can be a joyful experience. There's always going to be challenges. It is hard work, but it's something that's very rewarding. I was about to jump in and say that I really think that what Bill did was in the letter and the spirit of the law, it wasn't just opening the doors and letting in students with disabilities. It is that promise of a free and appropriate public education in the least restrictive environment, which means that to the extent possible, and for many of our students, it is 100% possible to have them being educated alongside their non-disabled peers. And so what Bill did was he brought to life what's actually on paper in the law. So, and you're looking at this, Valerie, across the country, and there's two aspects of this, I think. One is, are programs being implemented well, inclusion programs across the country? And I would guess the answer is to varying degrees. And so we can dig into that. The other side of this is that the field continues to grow and the student body continues to grow who have these needs. And I'm wondering if we can dig into that first, Valerie and Bill. There's, you know, from the inception of the act, there were about 3.6 million students. So about 8.3% of the student population in the U.S., was deemed in some way to have a disability or be enrolled as a special education student that's grown to about 7.2 million or a little over 12% of the population as of 2021. The majority of those disabilities, with number one being learning disabilities, sometimes not diagnosed until later in the student's career, speech and language impairment, other health impairments, and autism. And the fastest growing category in that is autism. I'm wondering, on a percentage basis, do you both have a point of view on why there are more students with disabilities now in the system than there were back at the inception of the act? Are we just better able to diagnose it? Are there just growth in certain disabilities for other reasons? What are you finding? So I think that if I were to theorize and guess, I would say that we are probably better at child find than we were many years ago, which is the mandate that we go out and we find children who might have additional needs and we figure out how to deliver the services and supports they need. I think that's part of it. I think that We have come a long way. We are still not where we probably should be, but we've come a long way in families recognizing that my child might have needs that require professional assistance that I can't provide and actually going out and seeking that help. I think we're better at everything that we do now than we used to be. 
And I would add that perhaps because of medical advances, there are more children born with multiple disabilities, and there seems to be a higher incidence of students on the autism spectrum. But there were many kids with needs before that were undiagnosed and unserved. And in terms of inclusion, we've certainly made tremendous progress in this country over the past 30, 40 years. It is still unfortunate, though, that there are still large numbers of students who don't even get the opportunity to be included, not because of their potential, but rather because of lack of commitment on the adults, lack of preparation by districts and schools, administrative inconvenience, and yes, there are still some class and racial biases in terms of which students get to be included. Why is it so difficult for inclusion to happen? Well, I think there have to be some changes. First, I want to say that inclusion doesn't exist in a vacuum. In order to have good inclusion, you have to have a good school, strong leadership, caring and competent staff, engaging curriculum, positive school climate, family and community support. Those are the foundation. But then when you want to also implement inclusive classrooms and schools, there have to be some changes. You have to work hard at building a culture of inclusion And you have to also work hard at developing staffing, which was much more collaborative and problem solving. These take energy. People have to work together. And we can certainly learn from other schools and other examples, but it does take additional efforts. Commitment is key. I want to talk a little bit more about inclusive practices in particularly in serving students with multiple disabilities or students with cognitive disabilities or students who are cognitively impaired. Is it easier to include students who are cognitively impaired than it is to include students who have a specific learning disability? I would say, if I could be specific and give an example, I think some ways what we do for one group of students opens it up for other students too. So for example, when we are including students with significant learning disabilities, the largest group of students with disabilities, how do you do it in an honors history class? In the past, we would have said, well, they can't be in honors history or they have to read less material. Now, what we say is, yes, you read some of that material with the eyes, but the rest of the material is provided digitally. And the expectations are that you're going to keep up with all the work of the rest of the class. And perhaps when the professor, the teacher is giving a lecture, maybe we allow that students to record the lecture or the teacher can provide notes. And then it's the other creativity and group projects. So in a history class, why not, in addition to just writing reports, provide opportunities for some students to perhaps make murals and pictures about history? Other students might be able to design some role play and skits. Other students might be able to take some of the uh, important dates and figures and uh, scenarios that happen in history and put them to contemporary songs. That's all universal design, multiple ways of accessing the curriculum, participation, and showing understanding. When you do that, then it also liberates opportunities for the student with uh, intellectual disabilities or Down syndrome. So they could participate in that history class. How? They would obviously have to have some modified material that they could read or listen to about history at their levels. But in addition, if there are those art projects that that student can participate, there's other ways of being involved in that class in history. So it's really the creativity of helping every student maximize what they're learning, accessing, and showing understanding, and providing some group opportunities. And sometimes the students with print disabilities and learning disabilities 
can be more challenging because some teachers don't think that they need the same kind of supports that students with more significant intellectual or physical disabilities need. But they are needing and deserving of supports that should be in the IEP, and they need to be provided not just when they're with the special education teacher, but throughout the curriculum. And that can be a challenge. That's fabulous, Bill. I I had a a bunch of thoughts that were coming to my mind. One is that I think a lot of the times when we have our students in self-contained settings unnecessarily, what we're doing is we're sending the message that those students don't belong. And I don't think any of us would agree that, that that's the culture that we need to have in a school setting. And Bill mentioned that collaboration. That collaboration and that partnership is key because inclusion really does not happen without it. I think optimally, in a perfect world for me, every teacher would have the tools in their toolbox to teach whatever student walked in through their door. That would be tremendous to me. And he also, Bill, also made a point about how students show mastery of the material that they're learning. There are many different ways to do that. And that doesn't always mean you read a book and you literally sit down and you write a book report. He mentioned the videos, the PowerPoint presentations. There are a lot of different ways to demonstrate mastery, but we just need to be open to believing that that way of doing it, although different, is important and it should not be discounted. And I think that when we create those opportunities, then we do open the door for all students to be included. And I'll just use my son as an example because most people probably know that I have a 12-year-old who happens to have Down syndrome. He'll be 13 next month in the seventh grade. He is in co-taught and inclusive classes with his non-disabled peers. He is on the honor roll and his teachers know how to modify his work he gets notes that he takes, the teacher takes some notes. So all of the things that Bill talked about that we know work for good inclusive practices, he is getting all that. And the great thing is that his school doesn't even know what I do for a living. They're doing this. <laughs> no, that that's great. They have no idea. And, and to me, that's what's even more exciting because I want true systemic change. I am always mindful of what we ask parents to do and our propensity sometimes to create more and more and more resources for parents. And every parent doesn't have the bandwidth to be as involved as they would like to be for whatever reason. And so how Mm. can we create true systemic change so that regardless of the bandwidth of our parents, things will still be done for our students that is in their best interest. And when we start doing that, then we will truly be on to something. And so that's what I'm striving for while I'm here at OSEP is how do we better support states and districts so that they can just run with it and it's happening for all students? Because I don't think any student with any particular disability in any category is easier or more difficult to teach. I think it just takes some creativity and some partnership and some collaboration and some time to sit down and talk about how we do it for students so that it's it's effective and they get what they need. Yeah, that makes total sense. I have a question actually for all three of you. Ross is an educator as well. It, was, is, always will. I I may still be certified in special education. I I started my career as a special education teacher. Yeah. And, but here's my question is that, you know, Valerie, you just made the point about, you know, if teachers come to the classroom kind of understanding the variables and the, the variety of options they have for teaching a particular class, then 
it goes extraordinarily well. You gave the example of, of your son in his classroom. And I wonder, is the onus more on teachers? Is this something that should be inherent to training of teachers? Or is this more a mindset that has to come from leadership? It's it's school down. It's maybe administrations of districts down to be accepting. Because none of the things that you guys are saying to me as a non-educator who came out of the business world, does it? nothing sounds like rocket science. It sounds like absolutely you should provide a spectrum of opportunities for children to learn and to show their knowledge. And so that part doesn't seem hard. It, what seems hard is the willingness of administrations and classrooms to adopt that modality of teaching so that everyone's very accepting of this notion that multiple things get you to the same end point. I think it's a combination of both, actually. I, I don't think it's just one. I think that when teachers are being taught to be teachers pre-service, they're not given all the tools that they should have in their toolbox. It is special education, you're taught this. You're going to do general education, you're taught that. But then if you have a child with a disability in the gen ed setting, is the teacher prepared? Do they know what to do? Do they know how to modify and accommodate and do everything else? And sometimes the answer is yes, and sometimes it's no. So I think we need to do a better job of preparing teachers before they get to the classroom. I think we can do a better job of the training that we provide to them while they are in the classroom. There's a lot that works, not just in individual teaching, but in coaching and in mentoring and all of that. But also there is an element of leadership creating a culture of inclusion and wanting it to happen because it does not happen by osmosis. It takes an intentional effort and we have to put in that intentional effort. Otherwise, it, it won't take place. If I can pick up on that, building a culture of inclusion is critical. So it starts, how do we talk about children who have disabilities? Are we obsessed with deficits? Are we focusing on potential and possibilities? Do we share the contributions of not only our students with disabilities with the larger community, but of people who've been successful in science, history, politics, government, arts? So many adults who have been successful have disabilities. We don't talk about them much, and we're perpetuating this myth of normalcy. It's about the relationships uh, are critical in schools that are promoting inclusion. Are we welcoming enthusiastic? about receiving and serving and working together with children who have special needs? And are we providing those supports consistently throughout the day? And I believe not providing those supports, not only for kids whether they have significant disabilities or they have learning disabilities, is not doing that as educational malpractice. And finally, in the culture, it's also high expectations. Inclusion should be about teaching up, not teaching down. So yes, in a classroom, in a middle school classroom with a student with intellectual disabilities, we modify the curriculum, a simple level. But at the same time, if we have a sixth or seventh grader who's reading at a high school level, let them read biographies or history books at a better level. We have the technology out there and the access to books and print and digitally that we can better meet students' needs and all students. And this idea of homogeneity in every classroom is a myth. And when you do inclusion, we realize that you have to work with students well above grade level, on grade level, below grade level. And here's where the expertise is important, because I don't think every teacher can have all the expertises of how do I deal with students on the autism spectrum, who are blind, learning disabilities. 
And this is why it's critical that you recruit expertise in various areas, but then you become a problem-solving and collaborative community. Tom Hare, former leader in inclusion in this country, used to always say the sign of an effective inclusive school is one where the teachers and the staff and families collaborate together, problem-solve, and figure out how to, what are the best strategies to help all the children succeed at the highest possible levels. So just going on that, Bill, I believe in many examples of this, including Boston, over the past few decades, districts often create adult solutions to special education. They create sub-separate programs. They create adult ratios. They say, here's what this classroom should look like. And then essentially, we sort students into these adult-created classrooms. And we have done this historically. And much of our sub-separate issues where we separate kids is because of adult convenience rather than the needs of our students. And one of those adult conveniences is we call this inclusion. And in fact, I would argue we should be calling it inclusive practices. Inclusion, we've even made it programmatic. Our schools should be inclusive places, places where the adults respond to the students' needs. We need flexibility in our schools, where the adults shift and move based on the needs of students at any given time. And to me, it is about professional development. It's about having great adults and having well-prepared adults, but it is also about flexibility in our schools to respond to student needs. And I'd just like to get your reaction on that around advocating for more, rather than adult programs, more flexibility in our schools. Well, we advocated, we started inclusion with both the district and the Boston Teachers Union that we would have that flexibility. The ability to select our own teachers, our paraprofessionals, our therapists, our arts folks, wanted to make sure people were committed. And then we also worked hard to ensure that we were getting the appropriate resources and support. And additional, providing support for teachers. So collaborating with universities, getting some grants so teachers have additional time to meet to plan, to share their strategies, to learn how to do this and to support each other. Because if you don't have inclusion with the adults, you're not going to have good inclusion, inclusive practices with the students. Well said, Bill. And I was also thinking that you're just bringing a lot of things back to my memory that, that I just wanted to share. Flexibility is the key word. I think that one of the many things that the pandemic taught us is that we can be flexible when we need to. Because typically in education settings, in education in general, it takes us a long time to get together. It takes us a long time to schedule a meeting to actually meet. It takes us a long time to make decisions. It takes us even longer to implement the decisions. Like everything just seemed to always take a long time. And when the pandemic hit, we didn't have the luxury of time because in many places, schools were open one day and they were closed the next. So we had to think quickly. We had to act quickly. If things didn't go well, then we had to be flexible enough to make those changes, not knowing what was going to happen during the pandemic, how long it was going to last, what it was going to look like, how it would impact how we teach kids, how it was going to impact our families. But we did it to varying degrees of success, but we did it. And so we have shown that we can be flexible. I really, in my heart of hearts, want all of us to remain in that posture of flexibility and not go back to being comfortable or complacent. Because if we can maintain that flexibility, we can make sure great things happen. But I fear that if we go back to being comfortable and complacent, which is the, the natural place where 
where adults want to be. We want to be comfortable as adults, right? And I understand that, but but we can't operate in that space when it comes to educating our children. This is the first, by the way, positive spin that I've heard on the pandemic, and I love (laughs) it, and I feel like we should run with it. It's fantastic. Well, I'm going to stay on the pandemic, Valerie, just for a moment. And, And is something really interesting happened with special education during the pandemic? One, concerningly, there was a huge backlog of testing where many families were asking for their children to be tested. And that wasn't happening during the pandemic. And I still think we're dealing with backlog. So I'd love to get your perspective on that. And we actually have seen referrals drop dramatically, where New York City saw a drop of a 57% drop in referrals for special education. And it's kind of curious, which has dropped their, stu- their overall numbers of students with disabilities in the district. Okay, so in terms of the, the backlog, it's an interesting dynamic because... It was obviously a lot of providers left the profession during that time. It was hard to get testing. A lot of families didn't want anyone in their homes and they didn't necessarily want to go out, right? So how do you do testing when you can't be face-to-face when typically that's the way it's done? How do you do that virtually and have it still be done well with fidelity when we weren't prepared for that? and so. Could we evaluate a child virtually? Maybe, but were we 100% confident in those results? I'm not always sure. And I think that played a role in it. I think that in terms of the decrease in referrals, I think a lot of that came from just fear of encountering someone that you don't know and knowing that they literally could be sick. Engaging with someone that you don't know, that you don't know where they've been is a serious thing for families to have to take on. And in terms of the backlog, again, in almost all places, the backlog is not what it was before. Most states and districts took a lot of the federal funding for, amongst other things, a lot of them did use it on trying to alleviate the backlog. And so the backlogs that were in existence years ago, by and large, are gone, which is good. And we're just trying to make sure that we have enough staff in states and districts to get all the work done, whether it is early intervention, whether it is evaluation, whether it is in the school building, we still have a shortage of staff, which I might also tell you that was in existence prior to the pandemic, right? So the pandemic did not create a lot of new problems per se. A lot of the problems that we have seen from the pandemic were already there and were magnified and exacerbated. Bill? I really can't speak too much to the specifics. I will say that I think since COVID and a lot of lost education, the focus of the media has been more on problems in schools, what students have lost, deficits academically and social, emotionally. And so I think it's important for school leaders, district leaders, government folks to also get the good news about what's happening. We need to get that news out so that other districts can learn from that, but also to support teachers, the hard work of teachers. It's demoralizing to just hear negativity and critiques without the recognition of the hard work and accomplishments of students, families, and staff. That's something we've been focusing on for a while here in OSEP and at the department, because typically when you hear about students and students with disabilities, it's not good news. But we know that there are great things happening all across the country. 
How do we find out what those stories are? How do we lift those up and elevate those? Because other districts and states can learn from what their peers could be doing. They could be having the same problem. And if they hear someone's solution to it, they could have that aha moment where they can modify it or tweak it just a little bit. And that solution would work for them. This also broadly gives us the opportunity to remember that the IDEA, although very complex, is not just about compliance, it's about results. And that's why we're all here, because we want to see the best outcomes for our students. You talk a little bit about this paradigm shift that happened, Valerie, and when kids were out of school and we had to quickly adjust and rethink education using technology and using different mechanisms for both teaching and assessing the way students are advancing. And I wonder how your office thinks about that, given that you have an incredible grant program and other ways of funding innovation. How much do you think about how technology and other innovations might affect the pace at which we could move to more and more inclusive environments? Uh, One of the biggest ways we encourage that is through our discretionary grants. And so when we look at our grants, we are constantly thinking about how we can help states and districts be more impactful. So what Mm. do we need to invest in right now that would help the field? Because we want everything we do to be timely, to be relevant, and to be something that can be used immediately. Not anything you need a PhD to read and 500 pages long, right? How can we get this? It's about information dissemination. How do we incorporate, everyone's talking about AI, right? Where does AI fit into everything that's going on? And I think things are moving so quickly right now that as a system, a federal agency at the department, we can't afford to not be uh, forward facing. I'd like to add first, since I'm older, when I started teaching, there actually was a lot of inclusion of kids with learning disabilities, emotional impairments, mild cognitive delays, and higher end on the autism spectrum. These kids were always in schools. It was the kids with more significant disabilities who were excluded. The difference was they were in our classrooms, but there were no supports for them. And it was sink or swim. In most cases, they sank. Now, technology has been huge for all kids in schools, and particularly for kids with disabilities. It's been liberating. So, for example, now in the study of American history, let's say it's at the high school level, we can have students learning American history at advanced levels, students who are blind, who have significant learning disabilities. They can read grade level material, but have access to other ways of reading to gather meaning. Now, students with intellectual disabilities can also be studying American history. And with the technology, the teachers have access to readily available materials that's at a simplified level that is commensurate with the students' abilities. And so it provides lots of opportunities. The sad thing is that in some schools and situations, people are not providing opportunities to this technology, to these accommodations and modifications, to this universal design. In the past, people used the excuse it was expensive. Now... All of those materials are free and available through Bookshare.org, through the laws of the federal government, providing textbooks in digital format, and with a relatively inexpensive Chromebook and other equipment, students with a range of abilities 
can participate in curriculum. And some are working well above mm. grade level, some on grade level, and some below grade level. Sometimes it's lack of commitment. It may be ignorance. And this is why we need to share the practices that are working that allow kids with a range of abilities to succeed in inclusive classrooms. And if I could just dovetail onto what Bill said, because I would be remiss if I didn't mention this, that just last month in January of 2024, we released our assistive technology guidance. And it takes the form of myths and facts, both for early childhood and school age. And a lot of people think assistive technology is a computer, and that's it. But there are many ways in which we can use assistive technology to help our students, both for the early childhood, the younger set, as well as for school age. And it also talks about where funding should come from and availability and all of the things that people have misconceptions about regarding assistive technology for our students that could make a huge difference. So on the journey of inclusivity around the country, but also particularly in Boston, where Boston has set forth an agenda that we will be fully inclusive in all of our schools for students with disabilities and English language learners in the coming years. For both of you, where what is your advice to Boston and other districts who are taking this on? And what are some bright spots around the country? Like who's doing this really well? Where should we go look and learn from? Well, I'm a believer that we don't know whether or how any child is going to be included unless we try it. So my advice would be to start every three, four, and five-year-old, almost 100% in an inclusive setting, providing the resources and supports there. I admit in my experience, and both in Boston and around the country, there are going to be some children, even in ideal situations, who are not going to make the progress. And they're going to need the continuum of either substantial separate classrooms or even private placements, more therapeutic settings. However, these numbers should be extremely low. So starting with a foundation, I've been in districts where 95% of three and four-year-olds are included. And I ask people how it's going. They say, well, 95% of them are doing great. And then when it goes to kindergarten and first grade, only 50% are included. Why? Did the children change that much over the summer or were the adults unwilling to grow it up? And so I'm a firm believer in growing it up. Now, on the other hand, I think that students in middle and high school level who haven't been included, it's critical to provide opportunities for them. I would always look in schools, first of all, the leadership and their commitment, having a plan that the school and then building on success. So I'm not it's 100 percent has to be this way. For example, we have found often that sometimes children with intellectual disabilities, when it gets to abstract math, second year algebra, many of those students are better served at that time doing something more functional, working in a school store, baking cafe, or indoor gardening, doing in a way that makes sense, that students, again, meaningful participation, successful performance, but providing schools some flexibility of doing it. I'm concerned about rushing into it with a system-wide mandate and how that will work. But by not doing that, I think, why is it not happening for so many students? And so I do think district states and the federal government need to be more assertive along with parents. Unfortunately, I found a lot of parents don't even know of kids with multiple disabilities, don't even know that inclusion is a possibility for them. They're not even made aware where their options and they're kind of funneled into substantially separate strands or clusters I think that um, 
to your question about who's doing it well, I think there are pockets of excellence everywhere. I do believe that inclusion in early childhood is critical because there is a tendency that if inclusion starts early, it's more likely to continue. But if inclusion doesn't start early, it's very difficult to claw that back and start inclusion at a later date. In, in other words, whatever is started is more likely to continue. So I don't want to discount the fact that in our preschool and early childhood settings, we need to be making a serious and intentional effort toward inclusion. And I've been saying it, and I'll probably say it till the end of time, that Students with disabilities that receive special education are general education students first. They are not the responsibility of certain staff. They don't belong in certain buildings or certain places or a certain wing of the school, right? We need to figure out how we all take responsibility for all of our students. And I think that's the culture in which inclusion will best take place. And just in terms of a practical level, I would also be remiss if I didn't mention that at the Department of Education in OSEP, we have a ton of resources, a ton of technical assistance, and it's all free. So there's no reason why any state or district would not want to take advantage of these resources. We want them to be getting rigorous evidence-based instruction because that is what's going to lead to the outcomes that we want to see. How do you just talk to general to parents about what we should all be advocating for, whether our children are with special needs or without? How should we be thinking about what we want school environments to be and what should we be saying to superintendents and leaders across the country, you know, asking them to move our districts in a certain way? It seems like this is not that complicated, but it does take leadership. But there are so many tools and tactics and so much research that tells us what to do. It's really just making sure that teachers are armed with the right capabilities and also the competence to know that as they shift their classrooms to this sort of model, that they're going to be supported in doing that. So one of our commitments to families when we started inclusion and weren't sure what we were doing is that students in general education, we're going to do as well or better. And then if you are doing universal practices and bringing in the arts and bringing technology into the classrooms, this embellishes the curriculum for all students. And so we felt, and, and something that we wrote about, that how including students with disabilities made the school better for everyone and was actually the key for transforming our school from a very lower performing school to a higher performing school. So I think there's a potential with inclusion to have more caring, compassionate communities, more flexible communities, more creative communities, more collaborative communities, if it's done well. And so we need to make that commitment to families and let them know of students with and without disabilities, why and how your child is going to thrive and do better. I also think that for parents, what they continue to do is advocate for their students no matter what, no matter what the situation is, whether their child has a disability or not. And I think it is key to express their expectations for their child as well as for their school system. What do you expect as a parent? What do you expect your school to look like? What do you expect your district to look like? And to advocate and be clear with the leadership to let them know, because a lot happens when 
parents carry the water on something and they let leadership know, this is what we expect. This is what we want you to do. What support do you need from us to make it happen? Is it is it going to the state or local legislature or it, exactly what does that look like? But when there is that partnership and that collaboration, then great things happen for our students and our kids. I have so many more questions about special education. What a large topic. And, and I'm so thankful to both of you for your leadership on creating, supporting inclusivity in our schools. Uh, there's no more important time to have schools that are teaching our students about belonging and feeling accepted by everybody and to teaching everybody about differences and how we are all different and yet we all belong. We will link Valerie to any resources at the, the DOE that are helpful in, in the blog. But we, we thank you both for your time and your leadership. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our conversation with Bill Henderson and Valerie Williams. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Deep Dives. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. Have a great day.